0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm a partner at Skybridge Capital and the managing director at SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which our next SALT conference is coming up in September in New York City at the beautiful Javits Center expansion. But our goal at those events and our goal here is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Rich Caputo to SALT Talks. Uh, Rich is the chief executive partner of the Jordan Company. He's also the chairperson of the firm's partnership board and executive committee. Uh, Rich joined TJC in 1990, and prior to TJC, uh, he was an analyst in the high-yield department uh, at Prudential. Uh, He serves and has served on the board of directors of several portfolio companies. He holds an AB degree in mathematical economics and business economics from the esteemed Brown University. Rich, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thanks for joining us. We like to start every episode uh, just with a quick elevator pitch on your background, just so the audience get to know you a little bit. What was your upbringing? Where are you from? Uh, How did you find your way to brown and then ultimately
1: uh into this business well thanks john it's it's a pleasure to 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 be part of these uh, esteemed talks uh, as i as I mentioned to you i've I've listened to a bit of them, and uh, you you guys do great work, so really thrilled to be part of it so you know my background I grew up in uh, Wilkesbury, pennsylvania uh you know, it was a, a pretty good place to, to grow up simply because there wasn't much going on. Um, so you, you, you had to find a way to entertain yourself and, you know, developed a lot of great friendships, uh, you know, had great, great family, great parents, and, uh, you know, grew up in, in sort of this, uh, really good, solid Midwestern, uh, uh, you know, you call Pennsylvania, Northeastern Pennsylvania Midwest when you're, you're in New York, but, yeah. uh, Value-based uh, environment, and um, from there, I, I, I ended up going to Brown because my father uh, went to Brown, and you know, I grew up with a brown sweatshirt. It, it seemed like the the thing to do. My my sister went to Brown, my older sister, so uh, you know, I figured uh, why not? It seemed to make a lot of sense, and um, that's how I ended up there. Uh, I, I, I looked at other places, but really, it, it felt like the connection was. Was the right place to be. It was sort of something that I always wanted to do when I was I was younger. And uh, when I went to Brown, I actually walked on to the, uh, the the men's rowing team back when when you could do things like that. And uh, that was a you know that was a great great experience uh, for me. Really formative, and I think influences a lot of the way uh, I think about uh, how we we run our business and. When you look at at TJC and how we've been built, uh, you'll find a lot of people with that type of background. We have a lot of former college athletes who work for us. Uh, and everyone at our uh, on our partnership board, uh, all of us were former college athletes. and we just have such an emphasis on the team and 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 really trying to be as selfless as we can and and being as collaborative as we can. And, and checking the egos at the door for the betterment of of the greater good, I think has has been a a real cornerstone to our success, particularly over the past decade as we've gone through an evolution and and had to to really evolve and transition uh, our management and ownership of the firm from from our founder. And I, I think that that mentality and that team emphasis and and collaborative nature has really been really really helpful. Uh, so you know, I, I started there in nineteen ninety. Uh, after I got out of college, I went to Prudential Base in their high yield group. Uh, was great. Learned a lot. Uh, had had really great mentors and people I worked with there. Uh, you know, we were trying to imitate Drexel Burnham, uh, as I, I think most people in that uh, in that time were trying to do in in the high yield space. And uh, I learned uh, so much about private equity before it was even called private equity. and had the good fortune of of being introduced to Jay Jordan back in in 1990 and and he was looking for for an associate at the time and uh it just worked out and I, I hung in there long enough and I, I guess outlasted everybody else to to get to where I am today but been a great run had have had a a ton of great uh times with great people here and uh just been been really blessed to to be part of it
0: Uh, but let's dig a little bit more. It's interesting that you mentioned the thing about uh, being athletes, uh, all the senior management at TJC being athletes, because we at Skybridge, we have a similar mentality when we're hiring people is that it's not that we're looking for somebody who's athletic or is a jock or something like that. It's just people uh, we find that thrive in a team environment, you know, playing college athletics or high school athletics, whatever it may be, that they're able to come into a a team environment and really thrive. Uh, And so it's it's a data point that we look for in the hiring process as well. But um, you talked about the fact that, that early on, uh, you know, when you started there, you guys were emulating people like Drexel Burnham. And when people think about the private equity industry, I think some people still think about, you know, the leverage buyout uh, type of uh, industry that existed during that day. It's obviously evolved over time. Could you talk a little bit more about, in your view, how the private equity industry in general has evolved over the last 30 years? Uh, and how you guys have evolved as a firm?
1: Yeah, I, I think the the private equity industry as we know it today really is is the post uh, credit crisis world. Right. Um, you know that's that's what we're living in today, and and that's the that's the current evolution of the market, which is, you know, really uh, a product of of you know, a a significant increase in in liquidity in the marketplace. So when you think about the evolution and going back to when I started in in doing high yield or Prudential Beige was, it was 1988, and what we were doing is funding predominantly sponsors to do to do LBOs, and and the sponsor we worked with most frequently was Prudential Interfunding, which at the time I believe was the largest. Uh, we used to call them LBO funds, not private equity funds, was the largest LBO fund in the country, and it was, uh, I think, $800 million. So that's 1988, things have clearly changed. But you look at that era, and I think if you, you even go back further, the 70s and early 80s was really the bootstrap era of private equity, no money down deals, You, you were you were financing with asset-based financing, really low multiples, high inflationary environment, uh, it, it was it was the salad days of of uh, the LBO business. You know, the the art was in finding the deal, and and you know, very inefficient. Those middle market deals weren't being auctioned, weren't be sold by bankers. You were going out there, you were meeting the management teams. You know, there's great stories about Jay Jordan cutting people's lawns and you know doing everything you would do to have to get that deal done. Yep. And then really after the S&L crisis in the '80s. Mid 80s, things started to change. And you, you, you couldn't do no money down deals as easily as as had been done. So you would have to come to the table with the checkbook, with some form of equity. And that was really when funds started to become a little more institutional. You know, you had KKR and Teddy Forsman and others raising those funds in the 70s, but I'd say in the mid-80s is really when they became far more robust because that equity capital was needed. The next change you had happened uh, in the market was was really when you you hit the recession in 1990, and there was a real flush out of these LBO loans. You know, a lot of these uh, Drexel finance deals and other finance deals. There was a big flush out. People lost a lot of money. Continuation of the uh, continuation of the SNL crisis, and you hit uh really this this uh regulatory push for you know minimums in equities in deal and you know what was going to be classified as a highly leveraged loan and so the bank market really changed and your ability to get deals done as you get into the 90s you had to have 20 plus percent pure equity to do anything and it, it was still a hustle business though you could still find deals by being proactive and going out and getting them but these middle market uh, bankers started to emerge in places like Bulls, Hollowell, and Connor, and ultimately became Harris Williams, became real uh, players in this middle market uh, auction space. And today, you know, Harris Williams is is one of the preeminent players in that industry, and and has spawned uh, n- you know other firms as well as, as as brought up numerous competitors in that regional investment bank. Has really grown. Regional investment banks have really grown to be. Uh, big players in that area as well. By the time you came uh, through that that '90s decade, you know, you you got into the internet uh, situation and the internet bubble in 2000. Uh, and we were talking. We have a group of interns here today, and we were talking to them, and we we started to reminisce about the internet bubble. And my partner Dave Butler said, "You know, none of you were born when this happened, but let let let's explain to you what went down." And um, You know, you had all this liquidity coming in the market, but that's where it was going. It was going into the internet. When you came out of that in the early two thousands, that liquidity dynamic started to change, and you saw bank uh, banks no longer were uh, the sole source of leverage to the market. You had a CLO formation. You had uh, a, a you know, institutional buyers of these loans that were non-bank entity, because there was a push for liquidity to get into those safer assets, and a lot of it went into to private debt financings. As I mentioned, the credit crisis even changed further, and as we came out of credit crisis, where that liquidity really went, in addition to to being the the the, the leverage markets, uh, was in private equity itself and the fund growth itself, and I think. If you look at the fund growth across the industry over the past decade, you know it's been staggering. Uh, you know there are multiple twenty-plus billion-dollar funds today. Uh, if small funds are a billion dollars in size, you know that was larger than the biggest private equity fund back in 1988. So, the one common theme that I'd say you've seen happen over time is just this this increasing amount of liquidity to this marketplace. Um, which has led to a lot more efficiency. Those days of, of, of cutting somebody's lawn uh, to get a deal with a private business owner, those don't exist anymore. Everything is sold. Everything is put through a process. And you know, you're know you trying to work a place to have a position to to make it make sense to really uh, pursue it and invest time on a situation you think you're going to have a meaningful chance at, at prevailing in. So some
0: of the conditions that you described, you know, the flood of liquidity into the market that that went into uh, tech companies, both public and private, um, you know, the the maybe excesses of of the late '90s, early 2000s, it rhymes a little bit uh, with with stuff that we're seeing today. I mean, you talked about the size of private funds today. I think if you talk to a lot of early venture capital investors, in particular, you saw. I'm not going to name names here, but because we're friends with a lot of these people, but you saw just uh, amazing amounts of money piling into private markets um, that were really trying to index uh, private markets and and high growth companies, even at early stages. Uh, And and a lot of them say that it was inevitable, what we're seeing today, which is some drawdowns, both in public market growth stocks, as well as in private markets, we have yet to really uh, have the full price discovery. But do you think you know? You think it does rhyme heavily with what we saw? How would you compare and contrast that environment, you know, in the the tech bubble in the late '90s to what we saw uh, over the last several years as as liquidity yeah. continue to accelerate
1: into the market? Yeah, I, I I actually remember talking to to some of our team and we were we were out to dinner and talking about it um, in in 2019 and and saying you know how it man it's it sort of feels like 1998 you know it, it it sort of feels like we're on the cusp of of people you know getting getting excessively speculative um and i think by the time we got to 2021 uh it really felt like it was 1999 um because so much of of the capital was was going for growth that i think to a certain degree value uh, got ignored, um, but yeah, there there are definite similarities. Uh, we felt uh, that, and I'd say, and and you know, what you're seeing right now is is the unwind of that. You know, I'll, I'll talk to to people I know who are venture capitalists, and you know, to them, it's Armageddon. Um, they're laying off uh, substantial amounts of workforce. They're battening down the hatches, terrified for liquidity, and. You know the world's coming to an end, and for us, you know, business is pretty good. You know, we're, we're you know our, our portfolio is doing really well, and right. we don't share those same uh, concerns. And actually, some of what we were seeing that was happening, uh, that was being pushed by by that tech euphoria, uh, was creating labor issues for us uh, in 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 higher. Technical professionals that we were looking across in in our portfolio, and that that had been a challenge for you know multiple years, and that's really started to unwind. Uh, so that pressure has come off that real highly skilled uh, technical uh, worker, and I, I I think that's you know that's been a positive at least for our uh, outlook uh, when we you know when we see this tech unwind, which is by the way similar to what you saw in In two thousand, although it was probably a broader a broader unwind of labor because right. you know those the the dot com bubble was just hiring everybody., Yeah,
0: as you guys, you know obviously, as tech stocks and and private valuations are ripping higher, everyone casts a envious glance at the type of returns yeah. that, that some of these funds were marking. You guys as an organization, as you saw that unfolding, uh, but you, you know, your portfolio is is you know much more diversified and and not as speculative, I would say, as some of the uh, tech heavy private equity portfolios that have grown. How did you guys look at that sector uh, while also trying to stay true to your own process and your own principles?
1: Yeah, so our principles, no matter what sector we're going in, they're all the same. Okay, we are about buying and investing in good companies and making them better. If if we don't think we can make the business better, we're not going to invest in it. Uh, We also are not chasing trophy assets. Uh, That is what the the majority of private equity uh, does. They they chase trophy assets, and it's been a real winning strategy because you've had multiple expansion for close to 40 years now. And the the greatest uh, amount of multiple expansion has been in the trophy assets. Asset sector, and that has really been apparent since the credit crisis. You know, you look at the growth of multiple in the trophy asset sector uh, over the past decade; it's it's unprecedented in in how much it's accelerated. Whereas, what we're playing and buying those good assets, but they're not the trophy assets. They're missing something. You know, they're right. they're you know they're they're maybe at a place where they they have a needed a upgrade within their management team. They need. Uh, to do some acquisitions to expand where they are from a product standpoint, or even from a regional standpoint. Or they have some divisions that don't make sense and and, and need to be be divested and have that capital put somewhere else. Uh, We work with the businesses. We have our own operations group in Chicago, gets involved with everything we do. We have our own business development function where we really help uh, the businesses we're investing in to uh, do acquisitions which is a, you know a great way to build value because you're able to buy them at a at a lower price than than your your platform and you're you're able to gain synergies and that's really something we work on we're not just buying for size we want to buy for synergy right. so that we can get extra bang for our buck so regardless of of whatever sector we're in we're taking that approach and so that the maybe the software assets or the more technical assets that we're pursuing uh, we're taking that exact same approach, where we're we're looking for that business that the majority of private equity investors they're not going to chase because it's it's going to require work to get it to to be where it needs to get to, and that's those are the situations that we really embrace, and right. and and I think it it's a, it's been really interesting to see the the spread between where the trophy assets trade. And where the assets that we're investing in trade, because the assets that we're investing in on a multiple basis, they haven't changed that much over the past uh, decade. Whereas the trophy assets have, you know, they've the multiples have increased by more than fifty percent there.
0: Right, and you talk about, you know, if you look through your portfolio, you know, you're seeing a lot of logistics, supply chain, industrials. You're investing in a lot of the businesses that are underpinning this sort of Amazonification of the world. You know, we obviously have an explosion in e-commerce. It seems like every day there's a new grocery delivery or, yep. you know, uh, delivery service that pops up, but you guys are investing in in the core infrastructure that underlies this mega trend that we're seeing. Could you talk to us about how you guys uh, started to develop that thesis and, and how you look to invest as a result of that, we'll call it the
1: Amazonification? Yeah, that's what we call it. You know, we 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 don't have a word for it, so we figure that's the best thing to to throw yeah. at. Um, we we one thing that we've gotten really good at is being self reflective and and being really honest with ourselves about when we haven't done things so well. And so something that we we really wanted to be able to define uh, about six seven years ago was. What is a Jordan deal like? What what are we going to have the best success in pursuing? And and so that's how we refined and def- really really firmly established the philosophy that we have today that goes across the sectors. But the other thing that we really looked at is is we were at a time uh, when every deal that would come in, invariably somebody would bring up you know whether it was internally or a banker or or, or a consultant or whomever would. Say well, what happens when Amazon gets in this business? And it was literally almost any business you would get in. The question would would ultimately become, well, what happens when Amazon gets in this business? Um, and so we really said, look, we don't want to compete against Amazon. All right, that's that's not what we're looking to do. But what is happening? You know, this this whole promise that we go back to this internet bubble in in 1999 and 2000. That that whole promise is is actually coming to reality. Okay. Um, and we have to be in a position to, yeah, we're not going to invest per se in in the Amazons of the world, but we have to be in a position to be investing in businesses which are going to benefit from that mega trend. So, so if you look at our portfolio, you, you'll look at a business, and it might be an industrial business, or you know, it it might be a a a logistic supply chain business, or you know, even a, a even a, a a tech business. Uh, or, or or a telecom business or a utility business. Um, it's playing on that Amazonification of the, the global economy. That that push that is going direct to the consumer. So so when I started in the business in the late '80s, uh, it was a lot about you know just-in-time inventory, business-to-business feeding just-in-time inventory, and a lot of the. Investment thesis around that would would talk about that. Um, and you know, I remember one of the first things when I started at Prudential, they were taking a fax paper company uh, public, and and that was part of their pitch that you know we're helping businesses get to just in time inventory, and that was the technology back then that really was helping uh, business to business feed that just in time uh, trend. And then it pushed to the electronic data interchange, and then. Ultimately, uh, it became the internet, and you know, as the internet and and bandwidth started to improve, it became just in time, not only goods but but services and 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 information. And as that bandwidth and technology underlying the internet has continued to improve, you're now to a place where it's just in time to the consumer. So that that supply chain that was out here from a a business-to-business, you know, uh, standpoint, and then the consumer was even over here further is compressing, and now it's just in time to the consumer, and that time frame is going to continue to compress uh, as we look to the future because that's what the consumer wants, uh, that's what technology is going to allow to happen, and so we're investing in businesses that are going to benefit from that compression of time and not fight that trend. But play that trend and do it in ways where we don't have to pay uh, the multiple that you would have to pay to get into maybe a a software company that is beautiful and a trophy asset that is playing in that area, and instead, you know, do it in a logistics business uh, which is benefiting there. Do it in a a packaging business which is going to benefit uh, from that, and 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 do it in a a business that. Is in you know making products and and services for power infrastructure and telecom infrastructure that is just going to benefit because the need for that with the Amazonification of the the global economy is just going to continue uh, to increase. So that's really that that big thesis reverberates throughout our portfolio in either a first, second, third, or maybe even a fourth uh, derivative.
0: Right. No, it's fascinating. I hope your interns take notes on on that great. Uh... That great uh, diatribe you just went on about the second order, third order, and fourth order thinking. I think people tend to get too caught up in those, you know, trophy assets and and not not thinking uh, as far down the chain as you guys do. But talking about supply chain, we talked about it before. You know, obviously COVID nineteen started snarling the supply chain. Um, the you know Russia Ukraine situation has added to it. Lockdowns in China have added to it. You know, related to COVID nineteen. What logistical challenges challenges uh, have the companies that you're investing in faced, and and how much has that gotten worse, gotten better, and and what do you think the future is for global supply chains?
1: I, I you know it's it's an interesting thing for us because we have such a big supply chain vertical and and a, a lot of investment there that the pain that's felt by the portfolio companies uh, outside of that that are facing supply chain inflation or or issues is is the gain of of that part of our portfolio. Again, one of the great benefits of having a diversified portfolio, but I I think it's also a huge benefit for the rest of our portfolio to be able to draw on that perspective and expertise that we do have, and and we do uh, really do that. Um, Yeah you know, I think the the theme if you if you talk to uh, Brian Higgins and pete Sofradini, who who uh, run our our uh, supply chain logistics vertical, what they the thing they say is it has it has evolved from just in time to just in case that businesses today can't see their supply chain go down. And I think what you've really seen uh, during this Covid period is the evolution of that 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 businesses are making sure that they have agreements and providers uh, on the logistics and supply chain side who aren't going to fail them and be in a position to secure those though that dis- that distribution, that supply uh, so that when things do go south and when China, uh, does have a lockdown, uh, or you know, when you have any sort of other inflationary pressure on fuel that is driving up costs, uh, you're in a position to be able to get those products that you need. Uh, so I think it's it's people have gotten a little less sensitive around the cost and realize it's just paramount to make sure you don't have a failure in that supply chain. And and I do think that's the big change uh, right. that, that we've seen.
0: Switching gears a little bit, obviously, uh, we talked a little bit about the market environment that we're in. But uh, you know, even though it's not so leveraged buyout centric today, the private equity industry still uh, still leverages used in certain situations. And, and obviously, in a rising interest rate environment, that leverage gets more expensive. So how are you guys thinking about the current rising interest rate environment and how that uh, impacts how you guys are thinking about leverage and how much you're willing to take on uh, to secure a deal?
1: We've always been a little less uh, leverage centric. Um, I think the average leverage in our portfolio right now is a, is about four and three quarters times. Um, we're not. We don't push the envelope on leverage because you know we've been we've been doing this for a while. We have tremendous continuity. I, I've been doing this for 32 years. Uh, we know what happens when when. Uh, credit markets go south, and 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 that's when risk really increases. We know what happens when when rates increase, and 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 when the cost of debt increase, and how that can bring you down if you've over leveraged. So, I think it, it we've just continued with our consistent view on it to be conservative on leverage, uh, assume that rates are going up, even if even if they you don't think they are, you have to make that assumption. Uh, I think today's world everybody is making that assumption. Uh, it's clearly the credit markets have responded. You know, there's just not as much uh, leverage available today as there was six months ago. How long that lasts? You know, I think it's just going to be a function of uh, when when this uh, fear of, of of rate increases subsides. But right. our, our our thinking on leverage has been consistent. We've always been conservative there, and we're going to continue to be conservative.
0: Is this an environment where you think we're going to see deal flow really slow down? Uh, or, or what do you what do you think the response within the industry is going to be um, to just
1: current macro volatility? You're going to have a you're going to have what happens. Uh, you're going to have a lot of people who are are going to want to sell. They're just not going to be able to get the price that they probably have it marked for uh, okay. because if the credit markets aren't there, uh, you're you're just you're not going to see the the values be there on the other side, and if the public markets have traded off, you're going to see strategic buyers pull in. So I don't th- I don't think it's going to be a lack of desire for selling. I think it's going to be more a function that uh, people aren't going to be able to clear their their hurdles. So you know it, it'll be interesting because so much capital has been raised. It's going to be interesting to see how uh, private equity responds. I, I really think if you I think the first half of this year was a great opportunity. Uh, Competition, uh, people were scared. Uh, I think really afraid of inflation as you ended last year and uh, with the Russia Ukraine situation, really concerned. Um, And I think that that created a nice window of opportunity in the first half of this year. At least, you know, that's certainly what we saw from a valuation standpoint. most times when when you were in processes, it it might have just been you and uh, maybe one other buyer or just you, and you were you were competing against sort of that that reserve price. so, yeah, I, I look, I think you're right I, I i don't I think transaction volume will slow, but it's not going to be for a lack of desire. It's just right. are, are people going to be able to close on the other side? Well, it's, it's the fascinating thing you touched
0: on. You talked about it early in the conversation. You just touched on again the amount of capital that's been raised in funds that are investing in private markets. You know, a lot of them growth venture type funds, uh, but investing in deals that aren't you know at, at traditional venture prices. You're seeing massive Series A's, and and uh, obviously private companies stay private for longer and and raising money in, in the you know hundred plus billion dollar range in some cases. Um, but it, it's interesting to see. Obviously, with public markets having slid so much, you're going to see price discovery and firms that are burning through capital uh, on the growth side you know, needing to raise again. And it's just going to be interesting to see what prices some of those deals go off at, given the fact that people are looking to deploy capital, uh, but we're in obviously an environment where there's a lot of macro headwinds. Um, you talked about the window in the first half of the year. You, know, you think being very attractive for people like yourselves who are sort of Waiting to pounce on on uh, environments like this to get good deals. Do you think that window is going to close soon because of the amount of capital uh, that's there looking to buy? Because of you know receding worries about you know continued uh, rising interest rates. How long do you think that window is going to stretch before we see uh, markets sort of firm up again?
1: I think I think equities only part of the equation. Equity private equity liquidity is. For, for us, venture is very different. Okay. Right. Venture is 100% about venture liquidity. Um, you know, the, the other thing is in, in venture, I, I think, you know, valuation is beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? Like, I, there's not a lot, of, yeah, sure, there's DCFs, but projections in that business, who knows? And, right. you know, sure, you can look at public comps, but how do you look at earnings multiples when there's no earnings? So. I, I think you said it earlier. It's spot on. You know, the discovery of valuation in the venture business will be very interesting to see unfold uh, over the next year, and it will certainly significantly lag what you're seeing happen in the public markets. In our business, it's a little different. Uh, you know, we're valuing things. It's DCF driven on pretty yeah. well established earnings histories. Uh, it's driven by capital structures that are really well defined. And it's driven by public comparables, which are pretty clear cut. And you're 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 never gonna get too out of sync with with what's happening in those public markets. So I think you'll see the the our private equity markets, the non-venture private equity markets move in a way that that's gonna be closer tied to to the markets. Um you know, I, I think some will have more volatility, some will have less. I think we're, we're in that latter camp just because we tend not to just push our marks when the market moves too high, and as a result, we don't see it whipsaw the other way. But equity is only part of the story in our market. The other part is the debt. And to a large degree, the debt really drives it more than the equity, certainly from a price standpoint, as, as the deals get bigger. Because you're not going to fully equitize, you know, a two billion dollar deal, uh, unless you're a twenty billion dollar fund, and I, I, I think that's even going to be a rare thing to see. So, it, I, I think this will last in our business. Uh, the opportunity to buy will last, but the real issue will be: Are you going to find the debt providers? Are you going to find people who are going to be able to provide you with debt to close those deals? at an attractive enough rate and on attractive enough terms where the deal does make sense. Last question before we let
0: you go. In terms of opportunistic um, opportunities that you're seeing in the marketplace, are there any specific sectors within your your typical target market that you guys are particularly excited about uh, that maybe uh, have gotten a little softer as a result of macro headwinds uh, that you guys are looking to deploy capital into?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a really interesting one is we didn't do any Tech Telcom investing in 2021, Uh, that was actually the area where we sold uh, the most assets uh, and and actually had our largest percentage of distributions by far came from that vertical. First half of this year, uh, we put some money to work there, uh, some deals we really like. and, And they were deals that over the past few years, we would have never had a chance at buying just given their profile but because of the lack of, of depth in that market, uh, it's put us in a place to be able to buy it on terms where we say hey you know this is a this is a place where we can make a really good return and these are businesses where we can really follow that thesis of adding value so I think that's that's one area I, I would also tell you I think uh, our diversified industrial space uh, will continue to see tons of great opportunities uh that's such a broad space that, you're you're always able to find some value there. We we stay away from heavy cyclicals. We stay away from commodities. We've learned our lessons there, right? We're we're, we're not going back. Uh, but I think we we still, we see some great uh, great value opportunities uh, in that space as well. And you know, in general, I think we're we're always looking for the the best subsector uh, from a, a a value proposition of uh, the verticals that we're in. And if we're applying our formula our approach of building value, pulling those levers that we can deliver. We we have a high degree of confidence that, that we're going to be able to, to prevail with a, a pretty compelling return at the end of the day.
0: I said last question, but I a uh, question popped into my head that we like to ask, especially, uh, especially private equity investors uh, that have a long career. Uh, do you have a favorite deal that you worked on either earlier in your career or later in your career that that sticks out in your mind as one you're particularly proud of or or that, you know, is memorable for you?
1: Well, from a firm standpoint, we like all our kids, right? (laughs) Exactly. You're never going to say that. Um, I've been I've been really fortunate that I've been doing this for a long time and been doing it in in a bunch of different markets and met some great people, you know, favorites. I, I I learned a lot from all of them. I'd say one deal, though, that I think was was uh, a deal just because it was a different thing for us was a company called Safety Insurance, uh, which is now a public company. Uh, great people, uh, great business, a home run deal for us in uh, the property casualty, uh, personal property and casualty, basically automotive and homeowners insurance up in Massachusetts. the only insurance deal we ever did uh but we were able to buy it at a great price uh we bought it in 2001 and faced a lot of a lot of uh adversity during the process uh the owner of the business actually passed away uh in between signing and closing uh the closing process involved a lot of regulation and then we ended up having to uh, uh close the deal in October mid-October of 2001 so we, we had to hold our financing together uh, after September 11th. And as, as you can imagine, trying to do that in a, a, a property and casualty insurer um, was not the easiest thing in the world. And it, it, I still go back to uh, one of the lenders in the group who, who, who ended up dropping from the loan in this period called me up and they said, you know, what happens if a nuclear bomb goes off in, in downtown Boston? what happens to this deal? And I said, we all got bigger problems. So this deal will be the last thing you have to worry about. Right. Uh, but they dropped from the deal. And that was sort of the thinking and the rationale then. But like all good things that require a lot of adversity uh, to get through, the, the reward on the end was great. And we just had great partners, superhuman beings. And, and it was a, the whole thing. Even the challenges uh, were, were really rewarding. So I guess that would be the one.
0: All right. Well, thanks for pulling that one out of your hat. I know it's hard to pick your favorite children, but uh, always fun to hear some some old war stories. But, Rich, it's been a pleasure to have you on. A proud son of Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, yes. always welcome on Salt Talks. Uh, but, but great to talk to you. We hope to see you in person at one of our future events, maybe uh, our Salt Conference in September in New York. Uh, but again, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, John. Love, love to love to see you in September and look forward to it. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Rich Caputo of The Jordan Company. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel or on one of our podcast feeds. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these SALT Talks. It's intern season, as Rich alluded to. I think a lot of what Rich spoke about today is uh, extremely educational for people that are coming through, uh, whether it's investment banking, private equity, uh, or anywhere in the industry to learn about uh, their process uh, in terms of investing in private markets. But uh, on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.